Canon Press presents the weekly sermon from Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho. Copyright 2018. If you would like to find out more about Canon Press materials and products, you may call 1-800-488-2034. For a complete list of our products or to order online, please visit our website at canonpress.com. Enjoy the sermon. Have you ever noticed how toddlers never want to play with their own toy? They always seem to want to play with the toy the other kid has. Teenagers commonly experience the tug uh, to leave one group of friends for a clique they estimate to be cooler. And adults aren't immune to this. Adults vote for politicians who promise that the wealth of the 1% should be redistributed to the middle class. The reason for all these examples is that there's a greedy little Marxist in every unregenerate heart. Discontentment has the profound ability to blind us to the blessings which God has graciously placed in our hands while simultaneously making the blessings across the street appear in crystal clear HD quality. Rather than spilling over with gratitude for our wife, our wealth, our welfare, we covet our neighbor's wife, his wealth, and his welfare. The reality is discontentment will never, ever have enough. As soon as it gets one thing it is lusted after, it devours it, and then immediately is dissatisfied with it, and thus sets its sights on some new fetish to indulge its insatiable desires. Godliness with contentment, as the Apostle Paul tells us, is great gain. It's a great gain because it enables us to see the ordinary as marvelous and undeserved blessings bestowed on us by a loving Father. From the smallest gift of each breath to the staggering providences such as unexpected financial provision or healing from some malady, contentment lets us rejoice in the giver of every undeserved gift, whether great or small. This godliness mingled with contentment turns us from looking at all the things God could have given us or things we think he should have given us and instead trusts that as the hymn says, all that I meet with shall work for my good. In this way, bitter waters become sweet, trials become triumphs, and even the things we lack become a reason to turn to God in prayer, asking him for our daily bread. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins, so let us prepare to do so by singing the sacrifices of God, our broken spirit. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says this, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Father God, we confess that we've glanced into the lane next to us and craved what you've given to our neighbor. Rather than rejoicing in how many undeserved blessings you've so graciously poured upon us, we mumble, moan, and complain about how we wish we had a better job, better kids, better spouse, better health, better car, better town, better president, and on and on and on our gripes go. At the bottom of all this is a pride that thinks we know what we need and deserve better than you do. You have given us far better than we deserve. Indeed, all I have needed thy hand hath provided. Teach us contentment by transfixing us with the all-satisfying joy of Christ. If we in the church regard iniquity in our own hearts or in our own lives, we know this prayer will be ineffectual. So we now confess our own individual sins to you now. And Selah. We do this in the precious and mighty name of Jesus, and amen. Amen. Let's rise for the assurance of God's pardon. 
Isaiah 6, 7 says, And he laid the burning coal upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched your lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin is purged. Only God can purge away your sins, and he does so only through the blood of Christ. So I declare unto you that your sins are forgiven you through Christ. The sermon text is taken from Philippians chapter 4. I'll begin in verse 4. These are the very words of God. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things." Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatever state I am, I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we know that you call us to be a contented people. And so, Father, we ask that you would teach us contentment. We know fundamentally that to be content in you is to know you. And so we pray that you would reveal yourself to us this morning by your word and by your spirit, that we might know you, that we might know Christ, and so find ourselves in him completely and utterly content. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Christians are called to contentment, and we know this, and we hear this, and we are reminded of this in the scriptures and, and, um, and in various ways often, and, and, it, and it's, it's, this is a good thing, and we must be content, uh, but sometimes one of the reasons I believe we have a, a difficulty with this, one of the reasons we sometimes particularly struggle with this is that, that sometimes we are, we are so zoomed in on our particular situation, uh, the particular thing that we're struggling with, the thing that we're having difficulty having contentment with, frequently we can be so zoomed into that and so focused on that that we lose sight of the big picture. We lose sight of why and how we are to be a content people. We lose sight of the big picture. And so what I want to do this morning is not only call you to contentment again, not only remind you that this is what we're called to as Christians, but I, hope, I want to zoom out and sort of take a, a wide-angle view of why Christians are a contented people. 
I want to zoom out and look at the big picture. It's not merely that we're called to contentment because this is a, a good thing, though it is, but because it is a central component of joining God's mission, of establishing his kingdom here in this world, and learning to fight like Christians. So Christian contentment is not just sort of trying to be okay with everything. Christian contentment is it's not that you don't care about what's going on. In fact, I believe in, in Philippians 4 and, and throughout Scripture, the call to contentment, the call to rest in Christ, the call to the peace of Christ is actually a call to join God's mission. It's actually to, to see the world in, a, in, in, in such a way that you can actually be part of a solution to change the things that are wrong, to change the things that are evil? Do you want to be part of God's mission? Do you want to help God? Do you want to be on that mission? Do you want to see his kingdom come and his will be done on, on, on this earth as it is in heaven? Do you want to fight like a Christian? Then the Lord calls you to contentment, which might seem sort of backwards and, and sort of strange to be content. How, if I'm content, how can I fight? If I have peace, then, then won't I just sit there and not do anything? Well, no. Not if you, not if you understand the peace of Christ. Not if you understand uh, your God. And so that's, that's, the, that's the big wide angle that I want to look at this morning. What is contentment? There's a number of ways that Christians might define contentment. But what I'm talking about is a, a Christian's tested, determined, Trust, conviction in God's story. That God's story, the way that he is telling this world, is the best story. It's a settled, tested conviction that every detail in this universe is in complete and utter obedience to the Lord Jesus. Every detail is in obedience to Jesus, and so because it's in obedience to Jesus... You rest and trust in the fact that he is telling the story. He is commanding all the details for his glory and our good. This is contentment. So let's walk through Philippians 4 together, this particular passage, and see this. I want to remind you of who Paul's writing to. Remember, Philippi was a colony of the Roman Empire. Philippi was a, a colony of the Roman Empire, and it's, it's not like Philippi was this center of serene peace. Uh, Philippi was, uh, was like actually most cities, most uh, places, there was quite a bit of ruckus going on. In fact, um, remember when Paul originally went there and preached the gospel, this was the situation where he and Silas were arrested and thrown into jail, and, and so Paul and Silas decide to have a spontaneous psalm sing, and they begin singing psalms and hymns in the, middle of, in the, in the prison cell in the middle of the night, and there's an there's a, a earthquake, the jail you know, is all busted up, all the prisoners are free, and the jailer comes running out and is about to kill himself because he's sure that all of the all of the prisoners have escaped, and Paul calls out and says, hey, we're all here. Don't kill yourself. And, and the jailer falls down on his knees and says, what must I do to be saved? I don't know who you are, but I want to worship your God. And, and, and he explains the gospel to him. The jailer believes, and they have a baptism service in the middle of the night. Right, you remember that story? 
Okay, that's, that's Philippi. That's where we are. And then, of course, in the morning, there's a messenger that comes from the city council, and city council says, um, yeah, we're going to have to ask you to leave now. And Paul says, well, that's nice, but I'm a Roman citizen, and I would like them to come over here and tell me themselves. So, you know, and of course, they do come, and they escort him out of town, all terrified because he's a Roman citizen, and they threw him into jail and all the rest of it. So there's, you know, Philippi's already have sort of a ruckus, and the church there is probably still having some bumps here and there with city council. Maybe something we can appreciate, right? Um, and so you've got the political situation in the empire, but then you also have in, in Philippians 3, there's the Judaizer problem. So you've got this, this heresy that's growing up inside the church, and so there's church tensions. The Judaizers, remember, are the ones who said that, you know, being a Christian, it's great to believe in Jesus and all, but you're not really, really a Christian until you are circumcised and you're keeping the ceremonial laws and keeping the cleanliness laws and so forth. When you, when you, when you take on Judaism, then you're really a Christian Fully, absolutely, and, and you know, Paul's been combating that, and he has to combat that here with the Philippians, the church of Philippi is dealing with that. And then right before, the, right before I started reading in verse 4, if you just back up a couple of verses, Paul is, has just called out two women who are apparently arguing. And, you know, I mean, it must have been kind of a deal for Paul to have to mention them by name in the letter. He didn't just say, y'all get, get along. He says, Yodius and Syntyche, please, <laughs> please be nice to each other. Please get along. You know, we, and we don't know the situation. You know, these are like, you know, warring women's Bible study leaders or, you know, we, we, don't know, we don't know the context. But, you know, anyways, all this to say, there's, there's plenty of stuff going on. There's plenty, pr- plenty of challenges in the church in Philippi. They got political unrest and turmoil and bumps. They've got theological and, you know, uh, church ecclesiastical wrangling. And then they've just got personality issues too. It sounds like a fairly normal Christian church, Right? And so it's in the middle of this, after having just addressed Judaizers and having addressed these women who are arguing and not getting along, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Paul urges the Philippians to rejoice in all of it. Rejoice in all of it. Do you want to make a difference? Do you want to be any good? Do you want to face this like a Christian? Rejoice in all of it. In fact, he goes on in verse 5 that, to say that the Christians should be known for their calm. Christians should be known for their moderation. Christians should be known for their stability. Let your moderation, let your stability, let your calmness, let that be your reputation. Those Christians are so calm. Why? He says, because the Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. Christians are not calm. Christians are not moderate people. Christians are not stable people just because they got that inside them. They're just naturally stable. God just saves stable people. Ha! No, he doesn't. He saves us. Now you look down in your heart and you look at it and you're like, no, there's nothing stable in there. Right? There's nothing stable and there's nothing moderate in there. There's a roller coaster in there. Right? That's how it is. But he says, you're a Christian, and that means the Lord is near. The Lord is at hand. Your stability is in the fact that Jesus is with you. And so that means that whatever you face, you face it with Jesus with you. If you're a Christian, then Jesus is near. Jesus is with you. And so you see the wave coming, but you see Jesus right next to you. And you say, okay, I don't know how we're going to face that wave, but I'm with you. I'm with you. 
That's your stability. That's why you're calm. That's why you're stable. That's why you're moderate. Because the Lord is near. Verse 5. Therefore, we fight all anxiety through prayer. Jesus is standing there with us. He's near. So we talk to him about it. Lord, there's a wave coming. What are we going to do about that? Right? My family, it's breaking apart. What what are we going to do about that? I mean, the Lord is near, so you talk to the Lord about the situation. The King James says, be careful for nothing. But um, a better modern translation would be to be anxious for nothing. Um, Don't don't be troubled. Don't be be, uh, losing it over anything, no matter how bad it is. What are we to do? You say, but, but what if it's really bad? Well, he says, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So we fight all anxiety, all our fears, all our worries. We fight all the darkness through prayer. We cast all our cares on Christ with thanksgiving, verse six. And Paul says that when we pray like that, when we are casting our cares on him, we tell him about it with thanksgiving, God's promise is that his peace, which passes all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds through Christ. Verse seven, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds, or guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. When you pray like that, you will be guarded like that. This joyful resting in Christ is marked by a disciplined thought life. This is where Paul gives us that famous uh, Christian calendar verse. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, pure, lovely, good report, virtuous, praiseworthy, think on these things. Meditate on these things. Keep a commonplace book of all the good things, all the true things, all the just things, all the lovely things. Make lists if you have to. I don't think there's very many of them. All right, start writing. Right? Start, you get home from from work, you get to the dinner table. Okay, your job, you have to say 10 things that are great. Right? Before you say anything else, (laughs) make a list. Make Make it part of your ordinary routines. What are those good things? What are those true things? What are those lovely things? What are those praiseworthy things? What are those things that we want to remember? Write them down, share them, talk about them, make lists, have a commonplace book, do what it takes. That's what, if you want to fight for this peace, if you want to fight for this joy, if you want to be able to rejoice in all things, you have to learn to do that. And you learn to do that by practicing. You practice. Come up with something. This attentiveness should also include imitating mature Christians like Paul. So he says, all right, in addition to making your own lists, make a list of the things that you've seen and heard and learned and received in me. Follow me. Follow my example, Paul says. And by extension, we could say, find other joyful Christians and say, all right, I'm going to, she's just, man, I don't know how she does it, but I'm just going to kind of stalk her and, 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 and follow how she's so grateful and joyful and rejoice. I mean, look at her. I mean, she just keeps being thankful. I want to imitate that. Uh, that man right there, he just keeps rejoicing. I want to follow that, that example like I'm following Paul's example. 
This is part of the joyful life. This is Christian contentment is learned not only through making lists, thinking about all those things, but also following the example of mature Christians, godly Christians who rejoice in all things. This is the path, again, of God's peace. That's the promise again in verse 9. Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. He's still talking about peace. He's still talking about contentment. He's still talking about being guarded in your heart and mind. He's still talking about rejoicing in everything. It's all tied together. And then he gives them an example of this. He says, and just, just in case you think that, you know, I'm just telling you nice things to do. I've been doing it, actually. He says, I just got the gift that you sent. It's, you, you, they apparently had promised it a while back. He says, but I, I, you know, I'm rejoicing that you were able to get it. You were able to get it to me. I'm rejoicing in this too. I'm even rejoicing that it was, you know, it was later than I thought it was going to be. Uh, you, they had lacked opportunity to send the gift that apparently they had mentioned to him. But he says, I want you to know I'm rejoicing in all this because, because I have learned in whatever state I am in therewith to be content. I was content actually before the gift came. I was rejoicing even then. And now that it's come, I'm rejoicing. I've learned how to be abased, how to abound, in everywhere, in all things, I've learned how to be full, how to be hungry, to abound and to suffer need. I do all these things through Christ who strengthens me. And notice that. Paul is not saying, I'm amazing. <laughs> He's not saying, I'm so great. I'm so contented. I've got so much peace. I've just been thinking about peace and contentment a lot, and now I've got it. That's not what he says at all. He says, I'm doing all these things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm doing these things. I really am doing these things, but I'm doing them because Christ is in me. Christ is guarding me. Christ is holding me. It's his peace that's strengthening me for all of this. So contentment in God requires that you actually know the God you are content in. Contentment in God means that you know the God you're content in. In fact, it goes directly together. Christian contentment is not contentment in whatever you imagine God to be like. If you have a false image of God and you're trying to be content in that false image of God, whatever it is that you're doing, it's not contentment. Real Christian contentment is contentment precisely because you know your God, you know the living God, you know the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it's in him, knowing him, that you actually can't help but have contentment. It's in knowing him that you suddenly find yourself like strangely contented, right? You know this God, and you're walking with this God, and you're rejoicing in this God, and then all of a sudden you, you find yourself like guarded. <laughs> you find yourself getting hit with a wave, and it sort of glances off of you, and you think, that should have hurt a lot. I mean, it kind of did, but thank you, Lord. Thank you, right? His peace is guarding you and keeping your heart and mind, and though you feel it, you're human. You know it's, you know, there's tragedy, there's difficulty, there's hardship, and yet knowing Christ, he guards you, and you find yourself guarded. This is how you know that you are resting in God and, and, and who he actually is, not in who you think he might be. If you're not actually resting in who God actually is, you're not actually learning Christian contentment. So, who is this God? 
Who is this God that all peace and all contentment and all joy is found in? He is the God who is set on taking this world from glory to glory. There's, there's many ways we could, we, could, we could tease this out, but I want to just zero in on this pattern. What does God do? Who is God, the God that we serve? Who is the God that we are to find contentment in? He is the God who is set on taking this world from glory to glory. That's his pattern. That's his pattern. He takes things and he makes good things better. He takes glorious things and he makes them more glorious. This is the pattern. And we see this starting in the very first page of the Bible. We see this beginning in the very first chapter of the Bible when God creates the world. And there's this, there's like this pattern that emerges as he's creating the world. God creates something good, and then he comes back the next day, and he rearranges it. He restructures it. He divides certain things from other things, and then improves it all through the week, all through Genesis 1, all through the week. He creates something, you know, that's good, and then he comes back the next day, and he says, let's break it in half. Let's divide it. Let's separate the waters from the land. All right, there you go. That's good, right? And, and if, you've been, if you and I had been there watching, if you and I had been there watching, we might have been tempted to urge God to stop at some point. All right, that's good enough, God. Well, good, good. Yeah, land and sea, it's all pretty, it's clear. What are you doing? You're dumping fish in there? It's, it was really tidy right before all the fish got, there's sharks in there, God. God. Insects, really? Insects. I mean, they buzz. Yeah. And birds, really? Birds. Right? And before, it was just pretty. Now there's birds. It's messy, right? God takes something, and we do this, right? We do this. When, we're, when we, uh, we make something, right? You make something, you're working on something, and, and, you know, and you're like, oh, perfect. And then you look around, and you say what? Don't touch it. <laughs> Children, I love you. Don't touch it. <laughs> right? No, no, but God sees something good and sees potential for more. God makes something good and says, that's good for today. I'm going to come back tomorrow and do more with it. I'm going to break it and make something better. I'm going to restructure it. I'm going to, I'm going to refurbish it. I'm going to take it apart, and I've got, I know this is a great start. Probably the, the greatest example of this is Adam himself, right? He makes this perfect man, sinless man, flawless man. And then you're watching. You and I are watching. We've got our popcorn. We've got guys going to make something great. What is he going to do? And what does he do? He rips him open. And there's blood, right? And then he, you hear the pop of a rib bone, crack. You broke it. God, it was a perfectly good man. And you broke him. He's broke, right? What, what are we going to do? And then a few minutes later, you know, he sews it back up, and he brings something even better. Oh, okay. <laughs> Good work with this. This is the God that we rejoice in. This is the God we remain calm in. This is the God who is not far off. This is the God who is near to us. The same pattern follows through the rest of Scripture, particularly in God's covenantal dealings with his people. And, and this is why uh, reading through the Bible, the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation, is important for Christians to do. 
Many of you are doing the Bible reading challenge, and, and that's great. And if you're not doing that, do something else. But you need to be reading through the Bible regularly from Genesis to Revelation. And one of the reasons why you need to do that is, is just to get the flow of the overarching story because the Old Testament is all leading to Jesus. Jesus is the punchline. Jesus is the fulfillment. But if you haven't read the whole first volume, it's, it doesn't, I mean, it's great, but it's not as glorious if you don't know the whole story. So like, you know, showing up with Frodo, just throwing the ring into the, you know, you're like, well, that was kind of cool. But if you don't know the whole story, it's, you know, it's, it's not the same. And so you want to read the whole Bible. And I just want to give you just a really, really fast snapshot but of the same pattern from glory to glory. Even after the fall, even after Adam and Eve sin, even after death comes into the world, we see the same pattern where God comes he, he makes covenant with his people. He, say, he promises to be their God. He promises to save them. He promises to be with them and to be with their children after them. And he does this through covenants. So after Adam and Eve are, are, are sent out of the garden, then of course their descendants, many of them uh, fall into wickedness, but the line that we can trace to Noah is the righteous one. And Noah is saved through the flood. The rest of the earth is destroyed. And then afterwards God makes covenant with Noah. And there's a, a rainbow in the sky and says, God says, I will be with you and I will not destroy the world anymore. And, and that's wonderful and glorious. But, but then of course there's still sin and there's still brokenness in the world. And then God comes to Abram and says, I will be your God and I will be the God of your children after you. And I will bless you and I'll make you a mighty nation and I will bless the nations of the world through you and he gives him the sign of circumcision and he, and he shows him that he promises to be his God in this ceremony where these animals are cut in half and, and God passes uh, through them and says I am your God you see I am the God who, who divides and I am the God in those divisions who will be with you and, and then Abraham's descendants go down into Egypt and you think oh no the covenant is it's broken it's it's fading, and then God comes to Moses at a burning bush and says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I'm going to come get my people out. And it's that same God who brings them out through the Red Sea and brings them to Mount Sinai and renews covenant with them again. And he gives them the law, and he gives them the tabernacle and the, and the sacrificial system. And in each one of these covenant, it's just like climbing a mountain. You kind of get up to a peak, and you're like, well, that's pretty good. You know, but it turns out that most mountains are like lots and lots of hills just piled, piled up, right? And, and, and then it, it starts declining and, and things are not going well. You think, oh no. And then God renews covenant. It's even higher. It's even more glorious. You had a rainbow. But now, now you have circumcision and you have this, you went from one little family of eight to, a, to a, a clan. I mean, Abraham has 318 fighting men. He's got a personal army. Right? So he's a bigger family already. And then that goes down into Egypt, and it comes out as this mighty nation with millions of people. And they have this, the law, and they have the, 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 the sacrificial system. And then that, they go into the land, and they're given the land, but of course that starts to deteriorate. And then God comes and renews covenant with David. And now there's a temple built under Solomon, and there's this kingdom, and then they're scattered again, and it's broken, and they're sent into exile. And then God brings them back into the land with Ezra and Nehemiah and says, you know, even though it doesn't look as glorious as David, it's actually even more glorious. I've brought all the tribes back together. I've made you united. You've learned so much through this. And so the story then ultimately culminates in Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of all these covenants where, where the gospel is unfolding and it ultimately culminates in Christ and in the new covenant. And this is what actually Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3. 
He says that if you're reading your Bible rightly, if you're reading your Bible rightly and, and, and you're reading the scriptures rightly, what you ought to see is glory to glory. You ought to see God taking his people from glory to glory, from glory to glory. And he says this in, in 2 Corinthians 3, he says, and we, if we're reading this right, we are being changed into the same image from glory to glory. If you can see that story in the Bible, you can begin to see that story in you. If you can see that story in Christ, then that story will begin to emerge in you. Jesus actually intimates the same thing in, in Luke 24 after the resurrection. Remember those two disciples are leaving. They're all discouraged. They, they thought Jesus was the Messiah, but now Jesus has been killed. And, and so they're leaving in sorrow and Jesus comes up to them and they don't recognize him. And, and he says, what are you talking about? And he says, you know, are you the only person here who doesn't know what just happened? The one we thought was the Messiah has been, has been killed. And Jesus does a Bible study with them. And, and, he, and he says, ought not Christ to have suffered these things and then enter into his glory? He, he says, but wasn't that the story of the Old Testament? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And he doesn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. <laughs> Right? That have not been written yet. He has Genesis to Malachi. He has the Old Covenant scriptures. And in all of those scriptures, he expounds to them his story. He says, it's all about me. And the story, he says, you want to know the main motif, the main arc? It's suffering, then glory. Suffering, then glory. Suffering, then glory. If you read the Old Testament, he says, you should see me, you should recognize me, because it goes from glory to suffering to glory, to suffering to glory, to suffering to glory. Glory, good, broken, more glory. More glory, good, broken, more glory. That's the story. That's the whole Bible. And he says, so what would you expect in the fulfillment, in the culmination of all the covenants in Jesus? What were we to expect? Didn't it have to be that story? Didn't it have to be suffering and then glory? The center of Christian contentment is the cross of Jesus in which God broke the very best man in order to remake the whole world in him. The center of Christian contentment is resting in, rejoicing in the cross of Jesus in which God broke the very best man in order to make all things new in him. But it was the culmination of a story that God had been telling since the beginning. Here's what I do. I take perfectly good things and I break them. Why? because I know what they can be. I know what they can, I know what kind of glory they can be. Do you know that God? Paul says that Christian contentment is learned through prayer. Paul says that Christian contentment is learned through prayer. Your moderation, your peace, your stability in the midst of the storms of life is grounded on the fact that Jesus is with you. The Lord is at hand. Jesus is near to you, and because he's near to you, because you know him, you talk to him about everything. You cannot learn Christian contentment without a vibrant prayer life. You cannot have the peace of Christ if you are not constantly talking to Christ. And the pattern that Christian prayer, the pattern of Christian prayer that's laid out for us by Christ is the Lord's Prayer. It begins with our Father. How are we going to 
How are we going to talk to God? It's not merely that you say prayers. It's not merely that you go through forms. It's not merely that you, you say, you know, dear God, help me with my test on Friday. It is rather looking to God, seeing God, viewing God as your father. Jesus says, come to your God as your father, which means that you are to view yourself as his child, as his son, as his daughter. This means we cry out to God as the one who made us and cares for us. He's not distant. He's not detached. He's not far off. He's not aloof. He's your father. How many of you fathers have had to teach your children to call out for you? <laughs> what? <laughs> right? Children, as soon as they can talk, it's like mom first because you know mom. But then it's dad, right? Dad, 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 dad. Kind of think they're saying your name in vain sometimes, right? Right? Yeah, right. But you don't have to, you don't have to explain it to them. Like, you should, you should uh, talk to me about what's going on. Like, they just assume if something's wrong, tell dad. Dad. Right? That's just what you do. Right? When you know your father, if you know your dad, you think he, he's there and he cares for me. He cares, and so we, we instinctively cry out to dad. We're hungry, we're tired, she said something, right? Help. This is what we do. And, and, and Jesus says, to know God is to know God as your father, is to come to him assuming that he cares for you, assuming that you're his child, assuming that he doesn't say, oh, oh, you again. Oh, don't you have something better to do? No, he welcomes you as his child. He's glad to hear from you. This is why uh, praying and singing the Psalms is so important. Right, what does David talk to God about? Everything, <laughs> right? Everything. Uh, you know, he, he, you can just read the Psalms. It's like, how is David's life? I mean, it's pretty normal. Right? Pretty, 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 like he was human. God, they're trying to kill me again. They're slandering me. I think I'm going to die. Help. God, you're the best. I love you. Everything praises you and worships you. We all worship you. We love you. God, they're trying to kill me again. Right? I mean, th this, is, this is the story of the Psalms. And I think I'm dying. I'm drowning now. God, no, really, I'm drowning. God, I love you. Thank you for saving me. Thank you. Right? I mean, this is the Psalms, <laughs> which I hope, I mean, it should be, you read the Psalms, it should be so comforting. This is the prayer book that you're given by God to pray. Here's how to approach me. And it should be so comforting, you're like, oh yeah, I know that one. <laughs> I said that accidentally in my car. <laughs> right? like, I mean, like, you, you just, you're like, these feelings, these emotions should match. Like, can I, can I say that to, well, David said it to God. Okay, all right, here goes God. You need to pray the Psalms, sing the Psalms, because you need to learn that your God is your Father. Because when you learn to pray like that and sing like that and cry out to, that, like, to God like that, you're learning that God's your Father. God receives your cries. Two-year-olds are not worried about how to say it, right? Five-year-olds are not like, well, I'm going to prepare this special speech for my dad about cereal this morning. <laughs> it's just, Dad, I'm hungry! Right? You cry out to God? Do you assume that he loves you and he cares for you? Do you see him as your father? 
You cannot be a contented Christian if you do not see God as your father, as the one who is ready, willing, able, loves to hear from you, loves to know what's going on in your life. The next line of the Lord's Prayer is, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This means that we entrust our stories to his story. We entrust our stories to his story. His kingdom is more important than my kingdom. His will is way better than my will. So God, come. You do your thing here, and I want to just be part of it. That's what we're praying. That's what we're trusting. He has a plan that he is carrying out in this world that is wonderful, glorious, and altogether lovely. His kingdom and his will are taking this world and us from glory to glory. That's the plan. We don't exactly know what that will look like. We don't know exactly know where all the pieces are going to end up, but we know that's the story. That's the story. That's the plan. And either your options are basically to fight that or love that. Resent that or trust that. Hate that or love that. Those are your options. This is what God is doing. He's been doing it since Genesis all the way down to the present, and nobody has successfully stopped him at any point. Everybody that's tried to stop him has just gotten, just sort of spun into the plan, right? All right, you want to kill my son, all right? I'll save the world through that, right? You want, you want to do this? with, with the, my, You want to attack my people? Fine, I'll show how I'm powerful over you. Fine. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar, you think you're awesome? Okay, you'll be a farm animal for a few months, and then, all right, back in. All right, here we go. Anybody else? <laughs> Any other takers? People come running at God, and he just, you know, just does his thing, and, yep, great, that'll work right? That'll work. It's in that context that we are invited then to ask God for our daily bread. God is bringing his kingdom. His will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. He's taking this world from glory to glory, and it's in that context that we're invited to ask God for our daily bread. It's actually pretty audacious of us to think that we even know what we need, right? (laughs) Do we really know what we need? God is running the universe, infinite, understands every molecule, every piece of DNA, all of the details in the whole universe perfectly, knows what he's doing. And, and we think, like, uh, I need a parking place. Right? I, 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 just please, not a cold. No, not a cold. Right? But God says, ask. Give us this day our daily bread. So on the one hand, we need to have the right kind of humility that says, all right, God, you're doing like five bazillion, gazillion things and more. But this is really bothering me. This is on my heart. And God wants you to ask. He's our father and he wants us to ask for what we think we need. Ask him. What's the daily bread? What do you need today? But we are to do so, Paul makes very clear, with thanksgiving. Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That thanksgiving part is really important. Thanksgiving recognizes that what we have today is already from God's good hand. If you cannot come to him with thanksgiving, then you're not seeing him as your father. You're not seeing him as the one who holds it all perfectly under his control. 
But if we come to him with thanksgiving, we are thanking him for the good that we have today that's already from God's hand. God, what you have given me today in this mess, in this brokenness, in in this place where there's been sin and I've been sinned against, in this place of, of chaos, whatever this is, whatever this place is today, you say, but I know that every bit of it is under your complete control and you are good and you are my father. So thank you for this today. You do that. It's so crucial to pray this way because otherwise you're not recognizing who God is. If you're just throwing up random flares, fix this, change this, help this, but you don't know that God is the God who is your Lord, who is your master, who who loves you, who cares for you, who rules all things for your good, then you won't come to him, you won't be able to give thanks to him. And you're not actually coming to him as the God who will give you his peace. A number of years ago, when my wife and I were first married, we weren't able to have children right away. We, we, were, we, want, we loved children. We wanted to have children. We were excited about children. If you know my wife, you know she is a thing for kids. And, and we, you know, it, was, it was really devastating. It was heartbreaking, the thought that we might not be able to have kids. And the doctors said, you might not be able to have kids. And, and we began to sort of just reckon with this. And, and it broke our hearts. And we cried out to God. And we were praying, God, please give us children. Please change this. Please do something. And so on and so forth. And, and, and I don't remember exactly how it occurred to us or, or when it when it came to us, but at some point in the midst of that, over a few years, um, I, I, one time we, we sat down to pray, and I said, honey, we're going to pray for this, but first of all, we're going to thank God for not having given us any kids. We're going to begin by thanking God for where we are. And so we did. And then we, in the very next breath, we said, and Lord, please give us children. Why? Because we, we, we needed to believe that God is good, that he is at work in our lives, that he is good, he is a good father, and he doesn't give us stones, he doesn't give us rocks, he doesn't give us scorpions, he gives us bread. When we ask for bread, he gives us bread. And what he had given to us, though it didn't look to us like bread, was bread. It was what we needed for that day. It was where we needed to be on that day. And so we had to thank him for that. Lord, thank you for this day. What you've given to us today is not the thing that we would have picked, but it's the thing that you gave, and so it's good. And because you are the God who is set on taking this world from good to better, from good to glory, in the very next breath, we are bold to say, and Lord, give us kids. Lord, give us better. You are the God who takes good to glory. You are the God who takes glory to greater glory. So here we are. Where are your children? Thanks for this good thing, and we want more. That's how Christian contentment prays. That recognizes that what we have today is already from God's hand and whatever he gives us for our daily bread is good. And at the same time, we know who this God is. We know that he delights to give even better things. And so we're bold to say, but God, we know what you do. (laughs) We know how you do this, God. You've done it over and over again. So please do it now, do it here. And we don't know, we don't always know, what, is, what, what better is God going to do? What greater glory is God going to do? Another just really quick, brief picture of this kind of thing. We, we, some of you all know, we, we've lost, we lost a baby a number of years ago. And a month later, the Lord brought a foster son into our life. 
who we would have not been able to take if we had not lost that baby. And of course, on the one hand, you say, well, I wouldn't, I don't want that. I mean, I don't want to lose that baby. But man, having met this little boy who we had for a year, I love that boy. And the Lord knew what we needed. And, and what my will was not the best will. My plan was not the best plan, but God knew that there was a little baby that needed a home for a year. And it needed to be in my home, and so he had to make room for that baby. And I believe and trust that was the best plan possible. You see, we have to learn to pray in the will of God, toward the will of God. We want to pray as far as we can help it for those things that we see that would work toward the coming of Christ's kingdom, which means we need to be willing to pray that God would get us out of the way. God, if my plans are getting in the way of your plan, just, just, just get rid of them. If my hopes and dreams are getting in the way of your mission, your plan, crush them. Kill them. Right? I want to be in your plan. I want to be on your mission. I want your kingdom to come. Let my kingdom go. And so this means that it is important that all our requests include a spirit of complete surrender. If Jesus had to pray this way, not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus, God's own son in the garden saying, God, is there any other way but this cross, but not my will, your will. If Jesus prayed that way, how much more so should, must we pray that way? God, I'm pretty sure this, this would be a good thing. Deliver me from this. Save her. Change this but you know better than me and I will rest in your plan. Christian contentment is not apathetic. It is not stoic. Christian contentment grounded in the mission of God, though, is militant. This is the thing that I want you to see, that as you rest in God's purposes and God's peace, God actually arms you for his mission. Listen to this in Romans 16. The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Romans 16, 20. You hear that? The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. It's not merely that it's a nice thing to have God's peace. It's that the peace of God is what crushes Satan under your feet. Do you want Satan crushed? Do you want your enemies scattered? Do you want evil undone, then you must have the peace of Christ. The peace of Christ is what crushes Satan's head. The peace of Christ is what takes you into battle. When we pray with contentment, Paul says, the promise is that the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds. The peace of God is our armor. The peace of God is our fortress. The peace of God is our tank that carries us into war. Paul says elsewhere, remember in Ephesians 6, in the, the armor of God passage, right? He says, wear the gospel of peace on your feet. The peace of God is what takes us into battle. You cannot fully participate in the mission of God without the peace of God. This is because the conquest of the gospel is a mission of healing and restoration. It's not destruction. The gospel is very disruptive to the old world. The gospel is very disruptive to sin. The gospel messes up the old man, the old systems of sin and death and the devil. 
but it destroys that slavery. It destroys those strongholds in order to establish freedom, joy, and peace. So you cannot be a peacemaker if you are not already a fortress of peace and contentment. You cannot make peace if you do not have peace. How can you bring the peace of God if you don't have the peace of God? You must have the peace of God in order to give the peace of God. You cannot give what you don't have. One of the greatest meditations on Christian contentment is found in the rare jewel of Christian contentment, which is a collection of sermons by the Puritan pastor Jeremiah Burroughs, which I strongly recommend to you all. As I was reading to it, uh, reading through it recently, this one detail, I knew that it was written a while ago. You know, it's Puritan, so it's old, right? And you think, oh, it was written a long time ago. And, and, uh, and then all of a sudden, I, I, there was this passing comment in one of his, his messages to the Battle of Nazby. And, and suddenly my, my history nerd alarm went off. And I remembered, oh, the Battle of Nazby is like the turning point in the English Civil War. It was, it was in, in, uh, in 1645. And I'm like, wait, what? And I go back and look, and sure enough, this series of sermons is in, entirely preached during the middle of the English Civil War. When, the, when, the, when the, you know, England's just completely just kaboom. And you've got, you know, the royalists and the king people and the Puritans and the parliament, and it's just, it's just, it's a mess. And there's these battles being fought and war being fought and, and, and the future of England is at stake and the reformation in England is at stake and, and it's in complete political turmoil and chaos and craziness. And, and Jeremiah Burroughs says, we need a sermon series on contentment, right? And you think to yourself, What? Maybe like, don't we need like Christianity and politics or, you know, Christianity and I don't know, like, you know, like big things. And he says, no, what we need, if we want to see God at work in our midst, if we want to see his kingdom come in England as it is in heaven and his will done here on earth as it is there, we need to be in the peace of Christ. How will we be faithful to God here in this moment without the peace of Christ? How will we fight for the truth and goodness and justice and loveliness apart from the peace of Christ, guarding our hearts and minds and carrying us into battle rightly. Jeremiah Burroughs saw that was the case and it's the same for us today. Whether your battle is in your heart and in your, or in your family or whether it's, it's, it's with brothers or sisters in the church or whether it's with others outside in work or whether it's you're, you're looking at the political landscape of our day and just saying, this is crazy, this is insane, what do we need? With Jeremiah Burroughs, we need to look back to the scriptures and say what we need is the peace of Christ, guarding our hearts and minds, holding us tight, shot on our feet, ready to take us into battle so that we can do battle like Christians, so that we can actually be part of God's mission in this world, not trying to wing it on our own. Last, really quick, at the center of our text, Paul says to meditate on the true, the honest, the just, the pure, the virtuous things. And it, it, it really can just mean make lists. Make lists of these things. Just meditate regularly on these things. And it, it might just be that. But given the context, it's striking that that word, think about these things, consider these things, also is often translated reckon or impute. It's the same word that is used in Romans to describe, for example, God's imputation of righteousness to Adam and also God's, or to Abraham, and also God's imputation of righteousness to us. God reckoned uh, Abraham's faith, he, he reckoned to him righteousness, Romans 4.22. And then Paul goes on and says, now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. 
So this is the ground of our peace. God imputes the righteousness of Jesus to us who believe in him. When we see in ourselves brokenness, when we see in ourselves rebellion against God, when we see in ourselves chaos and anarchy, and we, and we cry out to God in faith and we say, oh, save us, Christ. God in, sees our faith in Christ and imputes our sin to Jesus so that our sin, our brokenness, our anarchy, our chaos is crucified with Jesus. And in that same moment, the righteousness and the obedience and the perfection of Jesus is imputed to you. So, such that God looks at you in your justification and sees you as pure and holy and virtuous and good. That is reckoned to you, and that's the ground of our peace. We walk through this world knowing, I'm just me. I'm sinful, I'm broken, I'm worrisome, I'm... uh." And God looks at us and says, and you are perfect and you are righteous and you are holy in Jesus. And so we walk through this world with Jesus in us and with us and around us, and that's the basis of our peace. That's the basis of our contentment. That's the basis of our courage and our obedience. And when you begin to understand that, when you begin to know that peace, you begin to imitate that. You you begin to see how what God has done with you and you begin to imitate that with others. You love as you've been loved. You're merciful as as, as mercy has been shown to you. But I think there's even a pattern of this this sort of this reckoning. You look around the world and and you say, but you know, my list is gonna be really short, Pastor. You know, how many good things and just things are there really? I mean, come on. We live in, you know, 2018. Right? And, and, but here's the thing. If you look at you with eyes of the flesh and you're like, yeah, I'm just a you know, just bunch of skin and bones and sin. Right? But God looks at you and sees royalty. God looks at you and sees holiness and righteousness and goodness because of Jesus, his son, his righteousness being imputed and reckoned to you. And you begin to see that and you say, okay, God is reckoning to me what he will do. It's, it's what Christ has already done and it's sure, it's fixed, it's finished. And so you look at the world, and you begin to look at the world through Christ the way that God looks at you through Christ. And so you look at your marriage, and you say, this is a mess. But in Christ, what might it be? My children, we're having difficulties, but in Christ, what might it be? My neighbor, what might it be? Our neighborhood, what might it be? And you begin to reckon to it. You say, you're not God, and so you know God, but I know your kingdom is coming. So God, would you take this broken neighborhood, this broken family, this broken business, this broken relationship, this broken person, oh God, I want to reckon in, I want to see them through Christ, what you might do for them, what you are doing in this world, that you would take them and save them, that you would take them and heal them. And so we begin to proclaim this gospel war by faith in Jesus. Father, we want to be faithful Christians. We want to believe what you have done in Christ for ourselves and so have peace in you. And we confess that too often we're trying to conjure up peace through through, uh, just saying things that sound nice or good or happy rather than actually trusting in Jesus. So Father, we ask that we would rest in Christ, rest in the fact that he has died for us, risen for us, that we are safe in him And so make us bold and courageous as we face the world around us so that with the peace of Christ, we might join your mission and your battle in this world. Of the five senses, our sense of smell is the one that's most linked with our memory. Our sense of taste even is dependent upon this sense of smell. Largely, uh, it's aided by the aromas of the food we eat. And that's why realtors tell you to make sure you bake some bread before showing your house. The memories associated with fresh baked bread will apparently bring back fond memories for prospective buyers. 
That's also why we still use grandma's famous recipe. Those aromatic scents of the food we, of the food we eat has a profound power to take us back and bring to mind old memories. The Passover meal of the Old Testament was intended to be a meal which brought memories with it, memories of God's deliverance from Egypt. When Jesus gave new meaning to that old feast, he instructed his disciples to eat this meal in remembrance of me. This meal is intended to call to mind the greater Moses, Christ, delivering true Israel, the church, from the Egyptian bondage of our own sin. God's not opposed to making use of our physical senses in order to speak to us. Uh, We Protestants are accustomed to placing emphasis on the hearing of the word. However, we shouldn't forget that God also speaks to us through the aroma of Christ, which we taste in this meal. He condescends to use these humble elements to spark our memory and call to mind the bread of his body, which was broken for your sin, and the wine of his blood, which was shed for the remission of your guilt. God not only commands us to remember Christ in this meal, he helps us to remember Christ by this meal. So come and welcome to Jesus. Father, the people of Israel saw your mighty hand deliver them from their slave masters, and you gave them a meal to remind them of your salvation and to build their faith in you. Now you lay before us a simpler but superior version of that meal, that our faith might be reminded of the great deliverance which Christ won for us through his blood. We are grateful And receive this meal with worship and adoration. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. There's a great line in Narnia, as there are many great lines in Narnia. But one in particular comes to mind is when Aslan tells Shasta, I'm not telling you her story. I'm telling you your story. And I only ever tell each person their own story. And that means, in light of contentment, that we need to trust that we have a sovereign God who is sovereign over all the details of our story. And so it's like when, when you're reading a good book to your kids and you get to the end of a chapter and it's bedtime and they say, Daddy, Daddy, read one more chapter, one more chapter. Our prayers in regards to contentment should be, God, read the next chapter. Tell the next part of the story. We know you like cliffhangers, but finish the story, which is just one more saying, of, one more way of saying, thy will be done. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.